0: Hi, this is Dr. Holly Ordway, author of Imaginative Apologetics, an Integrated Approach to Defending the Faith, and also Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle-Earth Beyond the Middle Ages, and you're listening to Pints with Jack.
1: A dawn in the middle of long vacation is almost a non-existent creature, as you ought to remember. College neither knows nor cares where he is, and certainly no one else does. Welcome to Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 4, Cocktail, where we're discussing Out of the Silent Planet, Chapter 2. Well, hello, everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we're working our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. I'm Andrew, and I'm joined as always by my co hosts, Matt and David. This season, we find ourselves among the stars and the planets, reading through the first book of C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet. Last week, we discussed the first chapter of this season's book, and today we're going to turn to chapter two, where our story takes a distinctly dark turn. As we mentioned in the previous episode, since Lewis didn't give his chapters any names, this season we're going to be naming each episode after a movie title. And what's today's episode named after, David?
2: Well, in this episode, Ransom spends most of the chapter waiting for a drink, so I thought the episode should be called Cocktail, (laughs) named after the 1988 movie starring Tom Cruise and Elizabeth Shue. As you can see, I definitely have a preference for the movies of the 1980s.
1: Yeah, let's maybe find something in this millennium, just saying, but, you know, <laughs> as you wish.
2: <laughs> no, no, no. I am a dinosaur.
1: Okay. You're the last of the old Western men, huh?
2: Mm-hmm. Great. Well,
1: welcome. How's everybody doing? How's the weather out there?
2: Oh, more snow in Wisconsin. As soon as we're done here, I've got to go snow blow our driveway again.
0: Oh, wow. Now, Now, okay. What weather would you take? San Diego weather or Wisconsin weather?
2: Oh, I would still take Wisconsin. California's crazy, Whoa. man.
0: <laughs> just the weather, not 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 like the whole environment, not whether politics or culture. Just weather.
2: Mm, I I would say it's 5050. It is very nice never having to do any kind of planning for weather because it's generally, you know, suddenly in 70. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, it is really lovely waking up in the morning and seeing a winter wonderland outside your door. Uh huh.
1: Until you have to go out and snow blow three times a day
2: they're trade-offs yeah i know but it just makes me all the more manly. (laughs) (laughs) i like it
1: wow how about you matt how's the weather there how's your week so far
0: there's nothing really exciting going on in my life right now i wish i i wish i had just work work yeah really just the that home stretch yeah actually it's as, as this is released that that stretch should be done actually um but that's my focus yeah but i'm excited um I'm excited. I do plan on the Friday to Monday over Christmas, like truly taking off. So that'll be kind of nice. Those four days, not doing any work, seeing family and my nieces will be coming into town and they're three, two and one. So we're very excited for Santa and (laughs) to be able to go, uh, go searching for him. That's a holiday tradition we have going to searching for Santa. Uh, It's very fun.
2: Just remember to keep your eyes on the road. No crashing, <laughs> and for people that want to hear that story, you got to go and listen to a previous Christmas episode of Pints with Jack. Uh,
0: I do remember, I was like, "Does he remember the story I told my grandfather?"
2: I remember well everything. Done.
1: <laughs> he does. <laughs> yeah, it's scary. So we're recording um, a couple of weeks before, actually a week before Christmas, a week and a couple of days. And last night we were treated to a winter garden tradition: the fire department with trucks and lights and sirens ablazing, drives Santa around the neighborhoods of the city. And so we heard lights and sirens and we went out and it was Santa Claus driving by and waving and ho, ho, hoing his way. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, we are in a small town. <laughs> the other day I was in the grocery store and, um, ran into, it just dipped in for two things. I was there, maybe two minutes and ran into four parishioners. <laughs> so definitely,
2: definitely a little, little
1: town. Beautiful.
2: Well, what are we drinking, gentlemen? Well, I am drinking carbonated water, which will become clear as we go through today's chapter. Oh, okay. You got a little seltzer going or something, huh?
1: Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. And I am drinking from my our happy birthday box. This is the box that I brought back from Oxford for each of you. Um, none of you had dipped in. And so I think I thought, let <laughs> me... Let me see what I can find that's the worst and give that a try. <laughs> so uh, I am drinking Fettercairn, and evidently this is the 12-year-old um, uh Fetter Cairn 1824 from the estate of the Gladstone family. And the house style is lightly earthy and nutty, fresh and light, caramel and faint peat, perfumed toffee, slightly metallic. So we'll see how it goes. What about you, Matt?
0: Hmm. Well, first of all, I'm holding off on drinking yours until Christmas. That was a Christmas gift, right? You mm-hmm. can't. delay gratification. I'm a new man. I've got to
2: wait. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have a common room and we're going to try them all.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a fun idea. I like that. Yeah. But no, I'm uh, I'm actually just sticking with the McAllen 12 that I have open. I think I've done that the last three episodes. It's just so good. The sherry cask, just the amberness. I mean, have you seen a scotch, this amber? I mean, it's just wonderful.
1: So since, uh, since Ransom learns a new language in Out of the Silent Planet in each episode this season, we're saying cheers in a different language. And today's episode, we will be doing that in Spanish. And I decided to make it not just Spanish, but, uh, but the cheers that I learned when I, was in, um, when I was in Spain. I spent one Christmas in Spain and I found out that you don't get presents on Christmas. You know what you get on Christmas? You get drunk. <laughs> <laughs> you drink cider, and you say "Salud, dinero y amor y el tiempo para gozarles."
0: That's
1: pretty good accent. Well done. So it's health, money, and love, and the time to enjoy it. So, uh, and today we're going to be toasting our top tier patron supporter, David Madden, who just sent in a wonderful end of the year Christmas donation. Mm-hmm. And so, cheers to David! Uh, may your uh, holiday season be be jolly and bright. Cheers. Salud. Salud. Salud.
0: Oh, that is just mm. I didn't even put a drop of water in that. Don't even need to open it up. Mm. It's just delicious on its own. I don't like drinking scotch anymore, really, that much with ice. Oh no. Because of what we've done here. It just it's become so delicious. I'll do I'll doers white label just because it's just it's it's very cheap and it's Nice to throw no. that over ice, but anything of any sort of quality, <laughs> I just don't want to throw over ice.
1: No, you wouldn't want that much water in it. Um, and so, evidently, this uh, this episode, Ransom's drinking a whiskey soda. We're supposed to be drinking whiskey soda, but we'll get to that.
0: I'll take so. a scotch and water. Hold the scotch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there Name there that
1: movie. Uh, no, David. Nope. Okay. Matt saw a movie, everybody, and remembers a lot. Uh-huh. We're going to leave that one a mystery. Okay. I'm
2: just going to enjoy. That can, be, that can be part of the listener question. If you know where that comes from, send us an email.
1: There you go. There you go. Well, as always, in each episode, whoever is leading will give a 100-word summary of the story so far. And here's mine. In this story, we meet our protagonist, a Cambridge philologist named Elwin Ransom. As he's walking along on a walking tour, a solo walking holiday, uh, late in the day, he finds himself looking for lodgings. He's a little foot sore. He meets a lady who asks him to stop at a nearby house where her son works and to request that her son, Harry, be sent home. At the home where Harry is working, Ransom interrupts a scuffle between the lady's son and two men. After discovering that he attended school and university with one of these individuals, they assure him of their good intentions. They release Harry, and he is invited into the house for refreshments. So, is there anything you want to share about this chapter as we begin? I guess it won't go
0: down this path, but I'm looking forward to... This chapter starts to tease out something I've brought up multiple times before already in our conversations, and that's the, the... juxtaposition of the two different worldviews the dichotomy between them that lewis really does a good job presenting here and we start to see that in some of the dialogue so i'm looking forward to us diving into that and i guess one thing i'll say is i'm looking forward to getting your guys's thoughts on the vision pre-vision he has i didn't actually want to do any research on it. i read it a couple times try to think through okay what could lewis be communicating because we know he's communicating something it's, it's very intentional so um I guess that's the, the the thing I'd say. This is this is going to be. We're starting to set the stage, and I'm I'm looking forward to this dialogue.
1: Hmm. Also, I think I found a great deal of thematic foreshadowing in this chapter. Uh, there's mention of the stars. There's mention of the dark and cold versus the light and warm. um, a mention of propagation of fathering forth uh, on an unsuspecting world in regards to um to space and and the planets and so uh some of these things some of these hints won't even find their fruition until the second book which um we won't be reading for a few years um but uh certainly lewis is kind of leaning into some things that he'll follow up on later i will say i'm starting to really get
0: into this yeah season already from the preparation and some of the themes in here it's gonna be really disappointing and i mean this in a good sense but waiting for the next ones i feel like this urge to all right let's just jump to when we're done with this and just keep the story going and then jump to the next one uh and just like bring this full circle and uh yeah there's just this urge i think that's a good thing i don't mean that like we should go do that but like that's a good thing i'm enjoying this more than i thought i would
2: yeah yeah to quote my favorite tree don't be hasty
1: (laughs) (laughs) fangorn right by the way, do you know where the inspiration for Fangorn's, Treebeard's voice came from? It was supposedly Lewis's big, deep,
2: booming voice. Vroom, vroom. <laughs> so there's a comedian I've seen on YouTube. She plays both Tolkien and Lewis, where Lewis tells Tolkien, I made a character based on you. You know, he's a professor. He's very smart, you know, talking about ransom. <laughs> and then Tolkien says, oh, I did that as well. He says, so, "So, so what was it? He's a tree, very boring tree, Spent, it takes a long time to say anything. And then Lewis responds with "The you got me. That was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that was a hilarious video.
1: Yeah. Wow, that's great. As we come to the beginning of this chapter, Ransom is shown into a room in the house. And while his hosts are away preparing refreshments, he recalls his memory of Dick Devine. Uh, There's great description of the room there at the beginning. Lewis says it's a strange mixture of luxury and squalor. Um, The two armchairs of the costliest type with cigars and oyster shells and champagne bottles, but also cigarette butts and half quarter filled cups of tea. And so what do you
2: make of these surroundings? What do you make of this room? I think the dichotomy tells us a little bit about these men, what they care about. Mm -hmm. Tobacco, fine food, good chairs, and things they don't care about, like cleanliness <laughs> or aesthetics. <laughs> it, it sounds like a real bachelor pad. It actually reminds me a little bit of the kilns, but without the luxury part. You, know, you can tell that two men have lived here for a long time. And it also even puts me in mind of some of the student accommodation I knew at university. Because I was doing an IT degree, I knew lots of other people who were also deeply into computers and so you went to their houses and apartments and they had some incredibly expensive electronic equipment tvs computers projectors but otherwise the place was just pure squalor
0: (laughs) i would also say it doesn't it doesn't strike you as substantial again like it's, it's the stuff that is luxurious kind of seems like, why, why, what that doesn't seem like the area that you should be focusing your attention or your uh, wealth. It's just opulence for the sake of opulence. And then the areas that are neglected seem like to be the areas that maybe shouldn't be as neglected. So it kind of feels like there's a little bit there of, again, their priorities are just so warped. Uh,
1: you know, I think that I would probably choose the word indulgent for the description of the surroundings, Right. They're, they're spending money on decent food and alcohol, but they don't care about their slovenly habits. And so, um, it also indicates that they have some funding. Evidently, they're renting this old manor house and they're living kind of high on the hog, but seems pretty clear that there's nobody kind of checking out where that funding is going. So they don't seem to be answering to anyone, and we learn more about that in that hideous strength, uh, and in particular uh, the the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments, the Nice, um, where Weston is is certainly well involved. So while he's sitting and waiting for his drink, waiting for the refreshment, he begins kind of thinking about Dick Divine and and how much he didn't like him in school. <laughs> and this kind of reminds me of Lewis's descriptions in Surprise by Joy. Uh, Divine, he said, was admired at one of those who, was, uh, who we have admired in boyhood for a very brief period and then outgrown. And the humor is perpetual parody of the sentimental or idealistic cliches of one's elders. So for a few weeks while at school, Divine's references to the dear old place and playing the game and the white man's burden and a straight bat had swept everyone, including Ransom, off their feet. But he soon found him a bore uh, full of flash and ready-made and wondered how he could be so successful. Uh, then there's that mystery of Divine's election to the Lester Fellowship and the further mystery of his increasing wealth. A damn clever chap Divine, in his own way it's a mystery how that man has got to where he is, somebody commented. So what do you make of, of Dick Divine? What do you make of and, – and of Ransom's reflections about him? And what do we learn about their relationship?
0: I think it, it fits really nicely with the comment I made on the last episode of thinking back to the great divorce and the substantial angels versus the um, non-substantial – or is it insubstantial? Uh, <laughs> non-substantial, insubstantial, one of those two. Transparent. <laughs> Transparent. Ghosts. And I get that this seems like a very big picture of there doesn't seem to be a lot of substance to divine, yet he somehow seems to still be climbing the ladder, making wealth, but he just can't figure out why. There's just not a lot to him. He doesn't seem to be this truly integritous, highly honorable, highly intelligent, driven, like the true good virtues of an individual, yet he somehow is just rising up the ranks.
2: I think your reference to Surprised by Joy is spot on. He sounds rather like Pogo. Somebody who wowed Lewis to begin with, and he then quickly outgrew. Mm-hmm. And I think Divine's sense of humor is something that Screwtape would approve of, because his humor doesn't appear to be very clever, it's just very flippant. But I will say I don't really quite understand exactly what wowed everybody. Is it just the fact that he's taking cliches and and mocking them, and everybody therefore thinks he's hilarious? No, I,
1: I don't think it's hilarity so much as it is sophistication. And remember that these are boys who are 11, 12, 10, right? And I think that they're kind of like Lewis, um, learned how to be a cat and learned how to be a fop and a dandy. Um, and he was really impressed with those people who seemed like they were so worldly wise, mm. Uh, you find it in the dynamic of you too early on. Adam Clayton, the bass player, was English and seemed to know a few more chords and use words like gig and sound check. And, you know, and so he seemed to be advanced. And so they they ascribe to them a kind of esoteric knowledge. And so I think that this is what's happening. It's, you know, the schoolboy who comes in and can't get it all sorted um, versus the prefects and the, the upperclassmen who kind of know how it is, and are smart enough not only to know the terminology, but to make fun of it and to make fun of their masters who use it. And so there's this whole kind of sardonic thing. And can you imagine an 11-year-old boy away from home, maybe for the first time, you know, certainly being bowled over by, uh, by these impressionable, fi- imp- impressionable figures? Uh, I also hear uh, these kind of definite hints of Lewis's essays, Membership and the Inner Ring, Uh, Both found in Weight of Glory, where Divine kind of seems like he's on the inside. Mm -hmm. And Lewis is fascinated by the inner ring when he first comes to school. So there he is, waiting for his drink. Divine comes back. He places the tray on the floor beside Ransom's chair.
2: And notice it's the floor that they they don't have a table.
1: Right. Squalor. Men.
2: You know, it's just, it's amongst the squalor.
1: And. Ransom is very thirsty indeed, but he now observes that his host is one of those irritating people who forget to use their hands when they begin talking. Then when Ransom asks, or when Divine asks him where he's been, he talks about being at Stoke Underwood the night before and Natterbury that night. And then he's going on to Stirk. These are all, I think, made up place names.
2: But we do find that the area is identified. Oh, yeah. We we find out in this chapter that the house is in the Midlands, which is actually the part of England where I used to live. It's a horizontal band of land that runs across England. It's very pretty. Okay. Yeah, lovely.
1: He talks about being in the Midlands on a walking tour um, and notes that on a walking tour, one is absolutely detached. As long as it lasts, you need consider no one and consult no one but yourself.
2: And when I walked across Spain, that was my favorite thing about that walking holiday. My responsibilities were incredibly limited. All I had to do was just keep walking. And I was just perfectly free to keep going, brush ahead, stay behind. It was wonderful.
1: Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, a priest friend of mine, uh, rode the Camino on a bicycle this last summer. I'm thinking
0: I might drive
1: the Camino. <laughs>
2: That sounds about right. Some people do do that. There you go. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. But before we get too deep into this section, there's a term that might not be familiar to many. We're told that Divine entered carrying a bottle of whiskey on a tray with glasses and a siphon.
0: Mm-hmm. What's a siphon? I assume siphon was like you siphon something off, siphon money, so it's like a filter.
2: That was what I initially thought as well. But it also never really made sense. Why do you need a filter if you're pouring some whiskey?
0: Right. Hey, you might have had a cork. Mm -hmm. If the cork fell in, you got a siphon. Throw it away. The the cork (laughs) out of it. That'd ruin it. Now they got siphon
2: designed for that. (laughs) No, it's, it's a soda siphon. It's this small container like a portable soda stream. And it's a means of producing carbonated water. Yeah. It's like a seltzer bottle. Yeah. And that's why today I'm drinking carbonated water. Since Ransom didn't get to have any, I'm drinking his share. (laughs)
1: Well, I'm drinking the whiskey and you're drinking the soda. (laughs) And so between the two of us, we have the whiskey soda. And of course, probably on purpose, Divine says, oh, the siphon is empty. Do you mind having water? And so Ransom asks for his glass to be filled up. And when he goes to fill up his water, that's when Divine spikes his drink. We also find out that Ransom seems to be a little trusting, and so he gives a ton of details in response to, to Divine's apparently innocent questions and says, oh no, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Don. That's a tutor or a fellow, that's a, a university academic. Lewis was a Don for 29 years. And uh, he said, as we said in our quote of the week, that a Don on holiday is, is a <laughs> completely anonymous creature. And I don't have any family, no wife and children, nobody knows where I am. Divine probes him a little further and says, well, haven't you left word at your hotel? And he said, oh, I'd be a fool to do so. So Divine realizes that uh, he can do all sorts of things to ransom, and he does.
2: And we also find out other things about ransom. We find out he's not married. He doesn't have any children. He doesn't have any living parents. There's a very strange line where where Divine is asking if he has no aged but honest parent. I don't know what the honesty of the parents have got to do with it, but okay. Mm. Uh, And he does have a sister who's in India.
1: I wonder if aged and honest parent is a reference to um, Great Expectations. Our main character goes to visit his aged parent, who he calls the aged P. But honest? I don't know. I'd have to look it up.
2: I think it's implied that both Ransom and Divine served in the army. Mm-hmm. So following Lewis's own timeline, we assume that they both served in World War One.
1: Yep, absolutely.
2: And then that that's another
1: kind of shared history that would unite them and make them men of an era and also kind of allay uh some of Ransom's suspicions. Frankly, he should have had a few more. <laughs> <laughs> um doesn't he uh doesn't Divine kind of tip his hand though uh, in one of his one of his interjections?
2: Well, he does offer a couple of blasphemies or at least he invokes the name of god he says god uh would rather reminiscent of the artist in the great divorce he, d- he does that a couple of times yeah
1: yeah and it's worth paying attention to the invocations of the divine one of the things that uh, underscores Michael Ward's claim about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is Peter all the time is swearing by Jove or by Jupiter, right? Now, I know that that's a ca- classic British expression, but I think it happens more in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm. And so, yeah, these, um, these kind of uh, bold statements that have more meaning on in, behind that than maybe even Divine knows. Um, I find here, too, that divine seems to be more pragmatic, more material, more materialistic, and we find that later on in the chapter, um, Weston being more of an idealist. And later on in the book, we discover that divine really only wants one thing. Yeah, that that was one of the parts that stuck out to me that I underlined
0: when he was talking about, do you do it for the money or the sheer masochism?
1: Uh- <laughs> and that,
0: that that was very revealing to me of his... Worldview, yeah. You know what's his motivation? What drives him? And and when you said tipping your hat to something, I was like, okay, that's where this is pointing. Yeah. No. Is it tipping hat or tipping your hand?
1: Hand. Tipping mm-hmm. his hand, I think, because
0: you're showing your cards. Classic Matt mess that up. <laughs> <laughs> it's a madism We're gonna we're just gonna change it. Tipping your hat to something.
2: <laughs> but but he does he does reveal the two things which he sees as motivating for anything. Somebody either does it for money mm-hmm. or he says maskism, but ultimately he means pleasure. Mm-hmm. So he will do things for money, and he'll do things for pleasure. And that's all that he can conceive of as to why anybody would do anything. Yes. And, uh, you know, walking and
1: experiencing. And Lewis talks a great deal in his letters and his diaries about his long walks and then being foot sore. The, the term foot sore comes up a bunch and it's already come up um, in this book. And so so maybe that's part of the masochism. You know, you're going to you're going to be sore. Your muscles and your feet are going to be sore if you do some walking. And they didn't have really walking shoes. I'm not sure what shoes Lewis would have, have used for uh, for walking, but they couldn't have been very nice by today's standards. Hmm. So he finally gets his drink. He drinks half of it, and then he starts asking Divine about his own situation and his association with Weston and
2: where they're living. And what do we learn in this passage? Well, Divine explains that the choice of location was Weston's idea and that it's just easier to go along with whatever he wants than trying to argue with him. He describes him as a strong colleague. Hmm. Um, another word would be a bully. Uh, but it does seem yeah. that Divine is basically Weston's financier. And although he describes their work as virtuous, he describes it as all straight stuff, the march of progress and the good of humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he implies that it's also going to be lucrative. Yeah. He says that it's got an industrial side. And I think we're meant to understand at this point that that's all he really cares about. He doesn't care about uh, the m- the march of progress or the good of humanity at all.
0: Yeah. I, I think also though there is here from, from the conversation with Dr. Glyer a little bit, The idea of, I think she uses the word in her book, humans versus humanity. Mm -hmm. There is something here where maybe Weston is much more intrigued with the whole humanity side of things. Divine is more like, I want the money, where Weston's like, I want to progress humanity. And those are obviously very interrelated a lot of times. (laughs) Um, That stuck out to me there with this is the beginning, the very, probably the first time we really see the idea of the good of humanity. And then we're about to see in the coming pages here as we discuss. What the danger of that worldview, is. Lewis kind of reveals that pretty quickly in this book, the, the extent that they are willing to go to, I mean, actually, let me rephrase that. The price they're willing to pay for the sake well, of- you- other
2: people pay.
0: Uh-huh. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, for the sake of humanity is quite high.
1: Yeah. And this idea of progress and the good of humanity, nobody asks where you are progressing towards. Mm. And nobody asks what you mean by good and what you mean by humanity, Mm. right? Yeah. Now, I'm not advocating this, but any humanity that could have produced as it was about to produce, you know, the Holocaust, which was going to occur in just a few years from the writing of this book, any society that could, you know, create such horror and such torture and slavery and all the rest of it, maybe the best thing for that humanity would be for it to end right? At least it should be, the question should be asked, but the kind of prevailing attitude that Weston has, and that's part of the kind of Western scientific mindset that Lewis is lampooning, the survival of the human race, you know, must be good, but nobody, it's like, like screw tape, never allow him to say what he means by humanity and what he means by good, and never allow him to ask what he means by progress. Where are we going to? Lewis has got a poem called Evolutionary Hymn. He says, Lead us, evolution, lead us up the future's endless stair. Chop us, change us, prod us, weed us, for stagnation is despair. Groping, guessing, yet progressing, lead us nobody knows where. And I heard Francis Collins sing it before. And this, it's this idea that Lewis was lampooning, that progress, that we should always be pushing forward, that we should ensure the survival of humanity, that we should dominate other creatures as long as the human species were to survive. Those are not gospel values. Those are the values of science, as Lewis is seeing it in the
2: mid-40s,
1: mid-30s, and and trying to portray it and, and lampoon it.
2: The values of scientism. Scientism, sure. Mm-hmm. And that may result in the abolition of man.
1: <laughs> it will result as it as it well should. So, well, as their conversation continues, something strange begins to happen to Ransom, and uh, he begins to kind of jumble the what he's hearing, and his vision changes, and then he passes out and experiences a strange dream. And instead of just saying Ransom has been drugged, he describes Ransom ex- Ransom's experience from the inside. And then lets us draw that conclusion. This is one of the brilliant techniques. What do you guys? What do you guys make of that? It's, it felt to me. It felt. It to me. It felt like there was something
0: deeply substantial here that Lewis is trying to communicate, because it, it felt very descriptive, very intentional, and yet I couldn't figure out what it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm curious for you guys. I mean, I'm thinking of the garden also of when we talked about the garden analogy that Lewis gives with grace and cooperating grace that we've read in previous books. I wasn't sure if there's anything with that or just the garden is coincidentally overlapped. I was like, well, it's, it's in a garden. There's light in darkness. There's a wall. I was trying to figure out what was being communicated in the context of the book and I couldn't. So I'm curious your guys' thoughts.
1: Yeah. That dream I found really strange, but, but the experience of ransom being drugged was one of those compelling things. So we won't get to peril this season, but when, he's in this kind of one man spacecraft that goes to to Venus when he goes to Perilandra. And when he enters into the atmosphere, the gravity pulls him down and plunges him into the ocean, but he doesn't know it because he can't see it. And so Lewis describes it from Ransom's perspective. And it's just brilliant. Um, by the way, if you want to own a recording of Lewis reading that very passage, uh, go to the rabbit room and they have um, three Audio recordings that Douglas Gresham made on his father's tape recorder, um, his father um, Bill Gresham's tape recorder, and Lewis is reading that passage from Paralandra. He's also reading the Merlin passage from that Hideous Strength, and then he's reading the prologue to the Canterbury Tales. But for three bucks, you can get the MP3 download and hear that description. Lewis is good at kind of describing things from the inside. We see it later on in Narnia, and um, and that's I think a, a bit of, of narrative genius.
2: We're back to looking at versus looking along again. Right. And so he's
1: looking along and he's taking us inside. Um, He takes us out. The narrator mentions this for the purposes of this book. And so Lewis is pretty deft um, and grows increasingly deft as his his, uh, fiction grows at kind of taking us out of the story, there are moments in the Chronicles of Narnia, watch for them, where things start to get really kind of scary and dangerous. And the narrator steps in and uses a modern analogy to kind of snap the children who are probably hearing the story read to them as a bedtime story, to kind of snap them out of any fear. My favorite of these where Lewis kind of gets into the along is when he describes in Perilandra this angel who comes to Ransom's cottage and it looks like he's moving at this furious pace. Well, in order to appear like they're standing still, an angel who is outside of orbit and, and you know revolutions around the sun and all the rest, an angel would have to be doing this really incredible, intricate, dance-like, very fast movement in order to appear still before our eyes. Right, because we're spinning on the axis on the Earth, and we're orbiting the Sun, and the the planets, the 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 galaxy is moving around in the universe. And so, to me, that's just part of Lewis's brilliance that he would uh, that he could describe something like like being drugged like this.
0: Okay, back to this garden because uh, yeah.
1: So, what does the dream mean?
0: What do you make of this? So, I have a thought now. Okay, as you were talking, I was reading this a couple times more. This part at the end when Ransom is on the wall yeah, and he's watching the other two have already jumped to the darkness. So you have what seems to be Mm -hmm. this good area and the light and you have this outside area which seems to be darkness. And the other two are ready to jump into the darkness. Mm -hmm. And Ransom's really hesitating. And then he notices a door. Door opens. These unique creatures bring Weston and Divine back in Lock the door and go back outside into the darkness. Hmm. It it suggested to me potentially that there's this greater divine plan that Weston and divine due to selfish desires are trying to go out and mess things up and go against the natural ordering of things as intended. And despite their desire to do that, the universe would not allow it to happen. Hmm. They whip, like They're forced back inside essentially is what it's saying. Door shut, you're staying in here. Hmm. It's like a child trying to escape and nope, you're going back in. And so we kind of see that throughout this book that they have this plan that's not at all according to the Jupiter jovial master ordering. Mm -hmm. And ultimately their plan is squashed. Like they were never really in the ability to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. Like that was never really, they weren't like close. Yeah. They might've thought they were, they, might have, they were hoping, but in reality we learned later like they're not. So I, I wonder if it's foreshadowing that, like their obstinance isn't going to, what do you guys think? I'll stop there, but I, I, that's a thought I have.
2: Hmm. Here's my take on it. Yeah. I think the Bright Garden is where the story begins. I think we'll eventually discover uh-huh. that this is Earth in general. The darkness, I mean, that's symbolic of the unknown, maybe even Mm -hmm. as some people call it space. And Uh... these two men, they transgress a wall, right? It's got glass on the top of it, which is quite common in England to stop people climbing over walls. You put, you basically put the glass into some cement at the top. So it's sharp and pointy. And these men transgress the wall. They climb over. Mm. And this action is something that we're going to read about again in this season's Narnia book, The Magician's Nephew. Matt mm-hmm. I hasn't read it yet, so I won't say anything more. <laughs> and then we have these strange creatures. Well, might we meet strange creatures in a few chapters? Mm-hmm. And might they take some effort to remove these uh, these terrible people from their company? Mm. And in the dream, we see them bringing them back to the garden. And while Western and Divine are ejected, Ransom is stuck on the wall. Could that maybe say that he's going to become a man between two worlds, half in, uh, half out?
0: Yeah. This is, this is, yeah. this is nice. Yep. I agree with this.
2: Absolutely. And he has an aching leg. Might that be foreshadowing some future wound for people who have read the other books? And I really don't want to spoil Perilandra anymore. Yep. Um,
1: or that hideous strength.
2: Or that hideous strength. Uh And the other thing that I notice in this dream is that Divine and Weston say nothing throughout. Mm -hmm. Whereas Ransom, he asks a question. He uses language. So might language Mm. be an important Mm -hmm. tool in the adventure that they're about to go on?
1: Very nicely. Yeah, very nicely analyzed. I think that this cold and dark versus the light and warm is also a hint of the forthcoming journey to Perilandra. And so, yeah, the, the earth is the silent planet and it has been kind of barricaded. Um, and the, yeah, so yeah, now I think that that's very intriguing. I would have loved to have heard what the inklings made of all of this, especially as he's reading it to them in 1938 and he hasn't read written the other two books. Um, and so I, I, yeah, I would give paper money to find out what they had to say. <laughs> yeah, David,
0: I agree with that. I think I think that's spot on, David, by the way. Well done. It's it's like yeah. essentially foreshadowing the whole book. And then one of the th- caveats here is to them it's darkness, which we're going to see the transformation and the knowledge that's going to happen. Um I like that. That's it. That's it. Done. That's right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I would be entirely. You know, I I'm, I'm not sure that I even. Nope, don't take that away com- from me, Andrew. Complete and utter, wholehearted agreement. But I think it's the best. Uh, it's the best bit of thinking. By Jove, it's correct. Okay.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I, th- I think we can at least say it. The dream is significant. <laughs> it's symbolic, and once we've read some more of this book publicly, we might even say it's prophetic.
1: Mm. Let's see. Ransom could never be sure whether what followed had any bearing on the events recorded in this book or whether it was merely an irresponsible dream. Um, Yeah, we can we can eliminate the fact that it might have been an irresponsible dream. So uh, so maybe it's a responsible vision. So um, we he wakes up and we find out that the hurting leg had been uh, caused by something in the real world. What was that? I think wasn't it he was just sitting in the armchair Mm -hmm. with his legs crossed too long while he was while he was asleep
2: yeah and i'd also add that in the dream ransom asked the question who are you to the strange creatures Mm -hmm. and we're told the response was who 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 just like owls and if you recall i pointed out in the first chapter while ransom was waiting on the porch he heard an owl yeah so as with the leg we've got this blurring of dream and reality but I don't think that's a reason to dismiss the dream at all, um, just because there's an overlap. Because well, you know, after all, God likes to use matter and things of this world to communicate. So I think we can still say that this dream is a prophetic dream, even if we can start explaining some of the elements of that dream.
1: And, and it certainly echoes in um, Silver Chair, right? When Glimfeather takes uh, Eustace, or Eustace and Jill to the Parliament of Owls, That's a pun, by the way. It's Chaucer's Parliament of Fowls. Um, But it's a night journey. The children are not really sure which side these people are are on. And the who, who, who certainly occurs there as well. So, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, and Ransom is beginning to see that there's some great confusion, and that's part of what's happening when dark forces are at work. Because, as I've mentioned a bunch of times, Lewis's, one of Lewis's overarching goals is for, to help us to see things clearly. And Ransom, will see in the next chapter, isn't really sure if he can trust his vision. And that's a huge bell that rings all the way throughout Lewis's writing. So... So he begins to come to, uh, and he's, while he's staying still and waking up, he overhears a conversation going on beside him between Western and Divine, but he's pretty sluggish, and he finds out from their conversation, too, that they're planning something pretty nefarious. And so he he realizes, not for the last time, that it's time to fight. These are people who are enemies that it's, it's time to resist. And he seems to get somewhere, he kicks, and he writhes, and... And he's sweating and he's, you know, one doesn't think of an Oxford Don or a, a university don as particularly in fighting trim, but he does what he can and he gets outside and he saw the reassuring stars. And so I think that's a hint to some of what's going on, especially what Michael Ward talks about with the sidereal and the stars and the and the heavens. Um, and then a heavy blow falls on his head, you know, it's like you see in the old those old 50s. You know TV shows or whatever, and uh, it's it's kind of a, a plot twist out of a potboiler, you know, thriller novel. And so, what is their plan as he struggles with them and tries to escape? What do they What do they want to do? What were they planning on doing, and what did they do? And how is Harry involved? Well, without without jumping ahead, I would say if I'm trying to put
0: myself in the shoes of what we're reading at this moment, they need Harry for some sort of. I mean, I, I know the word to use here, but um, some sort of mission, like an offering of some sort, maybe they're using him to complete something in the fact that he's, that he says he's ideal because he's incapable of serving humanity. So he's a lesser being they are going to kind of sacrifice for the sake of this mission. To what degree, for what, to what extent, we don't know that yet, but I think it fits with that idea that you'll hear in a conversation with Dr. Glyer from the book of, again, willing to sacrifice humans for humanity Mm -hmm. in that justification of the means because of the end. I mean, look, even they say this just slightly after they describe him as the ideal boy, Mm -hmm. we're risking our own lives too in a great cause. So there's some sort of cause or some sort of mission that they think is great. As David has pointed out earlier, we probably should be skeptical of their motives and desires. So despite them calling it a great cause, it's probably not a great cause. Mm-hmm. They're willing to sacrifice this boy for it. They think he's a lesser being, honestly, which also suggests about the world. Do you think of what's happening in this time period? Um, eugenics was a real thing. Absolutely. And so that's part of the context around this. And so that's, and it says, um, Handed over to a state laboratory for experimental purposes. Mm -hmm. Like he's that type of boy. The fact that that's even a thing, but it probably was a thing during that time period. Um,
1: It was. I mean, the Nazi experiments in the concentration camps didn't come out of nowhere. Um, And remember, this book is written in like 1936-37 and published early in 1938. So this is before... We see the concentration camps and some of the brutality that happens there, but a lot of that is in the air, and it makes sense if you have discarded God and science or scientism and progress, whatever that means, are the goals, and that the only the only authority is, is mankind. There are questions of vivisection going on, and so what are the lengths that science can go? And, of course, in that hideous strength, we find the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments, the NICE. And it's not so nice what they do, but it's this sort of thing. And so I think that's very much the ethos that's going on at this time. Mm-hmm. Anything else about this chapter, as Ransom's being uh, dragged somewhere against his will? Any final thoughts?
2: Well, we do find out that... Western isn't a great fan of well anything that isn't science <laughs> uh because he basically says that, well, not only will this guy not be missed, but you know he's a philologist, I mean he clearly isn't having a very useful life. We can put him to better use
1: hmm and that's certainly a kind of a prevailing attitude, you know this. Um, why are you spending money on anything but the hard sciences and the progress of man? And this is one of the ideas that Lewis is dealing with all the way through. The prevailing attitude at, the, at this point is that mankind's survival is the most important thing. That evolution and the next stage of evolution is, is of primal importance. And if need be, we should go to other planets and colonize them. Lewis was against space travel. In fact, he had a he had some interesting correspondence with Arthur C. Clarke, you know, the the author of 2001: A Space Odyssey. Clarke was uh, a leader of the British Interplanetary Society, who were advocating exploring other planets, especially as population was growing, and so this idea that we could go and dominate and. You know, be imperial, right? Colonize. This idea of colonizing space is coming from this white man's burden, this, this sense that the, the whole world that we can dominate should belong to us and that might makes right. And so there's that kind of thing. Humanity must survive and evolution must continue. There's no God involved. It's just, you know, man must must continue. And then divine is finding some kind of financial gain for it too, which is always there. And so Lewis is really portraying, and we'll see it increasingly in the coming chapters, kind of the ethos that's
2: going on around him, and that's part of why he's writing the book. So it's actually kind of funny in the conversation between Divine and Weston, that Divine is the one who's really advocating that whatever it was they were going to use Harry for, they're now going to use Ransom.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And this is the guy who went to school with him, who went to university with him. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's the one that's really advocating, no, 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 whatever nasty thing we want to do, let's use this guy instead. Because, you know, he's here and he won't be missed and, you know, he stuck his nose in where it didn't belong. So this is only justice. Mm-hmm. With friends like that.
1: <laughs> yeah. We see him as a direct descendant of Uncle Andrew, right? And we call Uncle Andrew the magician, but magician in kind of the medieval sense—he's experimenting with forces. And you know, we see Harry at first and then Ransom as kind of being the sacrificial guinea pig um, from from magician's nephew that gets sent through the experiment to find out what happens. And so, yeah, this is. This is stunningly lifelike in terms of what was going on in the mid mid 20th century. Hmm. Last thoughts, Matt? Nothing. <laughs> okay. Well, good. It's, uh, it's fun reading these chapters, but I'm hearing the bell sound for, uh, for final, uh, last call, final drinks. As we wrap up, we have our audience question. Um, Matt had his question uh, earlier, Mm -hmm. and we want to ask you, do you think Ransom's dream is significant? And if so, what do you think it means? So please feel free to email us at contact at pintswithjack.com, comment on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We pray for you all every Tuesday, and I actually have Pints with Jack in my daily prayers. Um, And so if you have any prayer requests in particular, send them along to our Slack channel. We'd also like to thank all of our Patreon supporters and in particular, our top tier supporters who include Matt and Jake, Erica and Marvin, Joelle, Deborah, Amanda, Thomas and Bill, Joanna and Angela, Bud, Shane, John, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen and Matt, Kelly and Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David and Rowdy. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate us and write us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. And join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Salud. 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 Cheers.